It's race day at IMS. This year's Indy 500, the largest sporting event held so far during this pandemic anywhere in the country. We'll hear from track officials and have the latest on Indiana's improving COVID numbers. Plus, the controversy over COVID vaccine passports brings another showdown at the Statehouse. We'll hear from lawmakers on both sides. It's all ahead this Sunday in Focus. Good morning, I'm Dan Spieler. What a momentous day in Indianapolis where today's Indy 500 will mark the world's largest single-day sporting event in the midst of this pandemic. And for Indy 500 fans, it means the return of so many special traditions we've come to love through the years. Lindsay Eaton has more. The Indy 500 is all about that finish line and all the feelings that lead up to that checkered flag. People are starved for traditions. You know, they, you know, when COVID first hit, they had no idea what the future was going to hold. Never did we think there'd be an Indy 500 without fans. Race day 2020 was much quieter. After a year of waiting, the track will now look and sound a little more like we're used to. It's really emotional. Last year was the first time in more than 100 years. Purdue's All-American Marching Band wasn't at the 500. I can't even tell you how excited I am and how excited the students are. You know, we just can't be, we can't wait to be back. 300 of the 400 students volunteered to come back for the race. It's the first live performance for the band since December 2019. And for half of the band, this will be their first Indy 500. They haven't experienced uh, the goosebumps when, you, when you're standing down underneath that pagoda and you're playing uh, for the first time. From the music to the milk. That moment is amazing handing it off to he or she in the winner's circle is just i'm over the top jill huyan will be the one handing off the milk to the champ in victory circle knowing that i'm representing so many dairy farm families there's a lot of pressure not to drop that bottle this is huyan's second time presenting the milk but this year with a crowd will be much different it's going to be so exciting it's going to be so energizing to know that Everyone worked so hard to get to that moment. Winners drink milk. It's more than just a slogan. It's a special part of the Indy 500. The tradition of the milk is, is humbling to dairy farmers, knowing that that's a trophy. We worked so hard to produce. In Indianapolis, Lindsay Eaton, CBS 4 News. Now, the county's mask mandate is still in place for today's Indy 500, and we spoke about that with IMS President Doug Bowles. We just want you to just make sure you're wearing those to take care of all those folks around you. As you're coming in and as you're standing in concession stands and going to restrooms, we're trying to keep people distanced as much as possible. So you'll see signage everywhere reminding you how important it, it, it is to do that uh, distancing. Now, track officials acknowledge they've seen a lot of fans without masks at qualifying events, particularly with new CDC guidance now in effect for those who are vaccinated. Today's race will likely go down as the world's largest event held during this pandemic, but it comes as Indiana and the entire country see drastically improving numbers when it comes to COVID-19, with more than half the country now fully vaccinated. Lindsey Stone takes a look at the impact here in Indiana. We're definitely uh, headed in the right direction. So our numbers are declining, both in terms of new cases and in hospitalizations and in deaths. On Sunday, the state health department reported zero new COVID-19 deaths. That's a great milestone. I have to admit, I'd love to see that happen seven days in a row, but 
I think we're a little far from there. They recorded, we recorded one today. The last time no deaths were reported was back on April 4th, but five deaths were later traced back to that day. But experts say we're not out of the woods. Indiana still is in the top third of places where COVID-19 is still circulating in fairly high demand. The mask mandate in Marion County will expire on June 7th, something experts worry could cause a surge in cases. We still are concerned that there could be a flare up. It's probably not going to reignite the whole forest being on fire. We may be doing it too soon for certain segments of our population. Dr. Paul Calkins, Associate Chief Medical Executive with IU Health, says the best defense is vaccines. We have, uh, I think, seven states now that have hit the 70% vaccinated or 70% first dose number. And uh, we're not going to get there until mid-August at the rate we're going. With restrictions beginning to ease, local health officials are asking people to follow proper guidelines based on whether or not you've been vaccinated. Everything being open by July 4th is probably unrealistic, but by July 4th, we could open up a good portion of the economy and a good portion of indoor spaces for, for individuals, especially those that have been vaccinated. Lindsay Stone, CBS4 News. Lindsay, thanks. Meantime, at the State House, Indiana's ban on government-issued vaccine passports has some questioning whether it should apply to state universities like IU. Some lawmakers now asking the governor to intervene on yet another issue that's also drawing the attention of Indiana's attorney general. CBS4's Kayla Sullivan takes a closer look. Stick to teaching. Stay in your lane. A group of Indiana lawmakers want public universities to stop mandating the COVID-19 vaccine. If they want to encourage it, fine. State Rep Jim Lucas wrote a letter to the governor signed by 18 other Indiana representatives asking for an executive order banning state university vaccine requirements like the one at Indiana University. This was something that very well could head to the courts. But Lucas says that could take years since lawmakers are recessed, not adjourned due to redistricting in the fall. They could technically address this issue now if they wanted to. To me, that's the nuclear option, and I hope it doesn't get that far. Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita believes public universities like IU are legally allowed to mandate the COVID-19 vaccine, but cannot require proof in the form of a document. That's because he says universities fall under Indiana's new law banning government-issued COVID-19 vaccine passports. Although we disagree with that portion of his opinion, we will further consider our process for verifying the requirement. But IU is keeping the mandate, saying it's the only way it can confidently offer a safe traditional college experience. State Representative Chris Campbell was a co-author on the vaccine passport ban. She says they purposefully left colleges out of it, and she recently double-checked. I had Purdue look at it because I did have that concern, and they did not have concerns at that point. Um, so I don't believe that it applies in, in that case. This means IU is free to require the COVID-19 vaccine and passports to prove students and staff got their shot. So can other schools and businesses if they want. That should be left to those individual locations because they know their, their situations and they know what needs they need in their environment to keep others safe. It could be up to courts to determine if there's a lawsuit filed in the future. From the Indiana State House, I'm Kayla Sullivan. Kayla, thanks as always. Friday, Kayla spoke one-on-one -on -one with Attorney General Todd Rokita about this issue and other related controversies in the news. Clearly, uh, state-funded universities are part of the Indiana government fabric.
You'll see more of that interview on our website and next week on In Focus. Kayla also spoke with Indiana Senator Mike Braun, who this week questioned Dr. Anthony Fauci about the origins of the coronavirus and whether the federal government should release more information on what they've learned so far. Why wasn't this something that was focused on from the beginning? Well, because it uh, arose in a country that's not known for transparency. I'm not sure if it's my place to tell the president of the United States You've been very engaging on a wide range right. of topics, and I think he'd respect your opinion as much as anyone. I'm just not in a position to know what might be in the classified documents and what else might be there that would not be relevant to this and might actually be harmful to national security. This is going to be festering out there, especially when it's been stoked over the last week with the article from the Wall Street Journal uh, about three of the lab workers that... Uh, and what happened to them. Also recently, I spoke with Senator Braun and Congressman Carson about the situation in Israel. It's hard to imagine what they're up against every day when everyone that surrounds them has some issue about their existence. The Gaza Strip, we were there at one of the villages within a stone's throw almost of the Gaza Strip. The amount of security the amount of attempts with improvised weapons that come into these villages, let alone the offensive approach of shooting uh, hundreds of missiles, uh, rockets into Israel. They started it. A ceasefire is almost uh, kind of a oxymoron in the sense that uh, they would need to quit doing what they're doing in the Gaza Strip. Israel has been reacting to it. My efforts to stand up for Palestinian human rights should, shouldn't surprise anyone who knows my record and my character. I've always advocated for people facing oppression and bigotry, be they Palestinians, be they black people, LGBTQ+, Uyghurs in China, Jewish people. Uh, and I also continue to fight uh, against anti-Semitism, anti-immigrant sentiment, anti-black sentiment. And other things, you know, and to that end, I cannot and I won't be silent about the human rights abuses that the Palestinian people are facing at the hands of our critical security partner, uh, the Israeli government. You know, for decades, they've been systematically displaced and mistreated, and it's wrong. Meantime, this week, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb was in Israel. He's the first U.S. governor to visit Israel this year. He calls the country an important partner for Indiana. There, as you see, he met with the Israeli Minister of Foreign Affairs. Well, coming up next this Sunday in Focus, the city's crime numbers on the rise. We're taking a closer look at that issue and talking with our panel about it up next. Violent crime has been on the rise here in Indianapolis and across the country. But how do our numbers compare to other Midwestern cities? Our Russ McQuaid takes a closer look. Indianapolis's homicide total for 2020 shot up by almost half from the year before. And this year's rate shows no signs of slowing down. Here's the total as of Monday afternoon. And here's where we stood a year ago on that date our city has really gone past the tipping point of violence that's surging in our community. With a similar increase in non-fatal shootings, those particular numbers would seem to indicate Indianapolis is less safe than it used to be. Not only are we seeing record-shattering levels of violence for our city, but when you do that comparative analysis, especially with other cities like our neighbors to the north, 
you really get a feel for the context in which the numbers make more sense. If you look at other large cities in our region, Indianapolis has more murders per 100,000 residents than Chicago, Nashville, and Columbus, but less than St. Louis, Cleveland, Memphis, and Louisville. When we're trying to figure out what's behind this big increase in violence, I don't think we should discount the uh, what's happening to the relationship between the police and at least certain of the communities they serve in our cities. That means for the Indianapolis police, if they haven't done so already, to intensify their so-called hotspot strategies, intensify patrols and police activity in those areas of the city. And they typically aren't many areas that account for a disproportionate number of homicides and other serious violence. Last week, a 12-year-old boy was shot to death in his grandparents' home while playing video games, leaving Mayor Hogsett struggling for answers on how to stem the spasm of violence that has gripped his city for going on two years. With the investments that we're making in law enforcement, with the millions of dollars each year that the City County Council appropriates to neighborhood-based anti-violence outreach, to the peacemakers in our violence reduction programs, we will make a difference. We have not been static in our approach. We have changed where change is necessary. The mayor said he's still seeking input from community groups while developing this summer's anti-violence strategy. And that was Russ McQuaid reporting. I'm joined now by insiders Adam Wren and Abdul Hakim Shabazz from IndiePolitics.org. Abdul, what are you hearing about the city's response to these rising crime numbers? Well, it's, it's, it's disappointing is what it is, as what I hear from lots of folks, whether you live in a crime spot or not. I mean, we've had more murders so far in Indianapolis this year than we did in all of 2009. And every year that uh, the mayor's been in office, it's unfortunate, but our murder rate has gone up. We spent millions of dollars on this. So, no, there, there's a lot of disappointment uh, in these neighborhoods. And also, uh, we broke on any politics this week that one of the mayor's violence interrupters, one of his former violence interrupters, was arrested for making death threats and intimidation. So, or rather charged with death threats and intimidation. So, we, we have to have a serious discussion about what's going on in crime here in this town. We need all the players yeah. involved. Adam, this is an issue facing a, a lot of big city mayors across the entire country right now. Yeah, we know if you look at 66 of the largest municipalities, policing municipalities across the country, that 63 of them have had uh, a jump and in, in violence this year. We know that the homicide rate up uh, nationally is 33 uh, percent year over year. So certainly a systemic problem that, that doesn't just include uh, Indianapolis and really policymakers across the board yeah. are struggling to figure out what's going on. Abdul, let's talk about what's happening at the state house in terms of IU and the school's vaccine mandate. State Senator J.D. Ford putting it this way this week. He said, it's interesting. My colleagues across the aisle who pretty much spent the whole session undoing Governor Holcomb's executive orders are now asking that he intervene in this situation by executive order with IU. Uh, he must be reading my Facebook post this week because I basically said uh, the, the exact same thing. I thought it was rather ironic uh, that for my Republican friends who complained about the governor's executive order now want him to, to use his executive order. So, you know, so that I get. Uh, like I said, I use it in an interesting position because the, the law says that you can't you know, mandate a vaccine passport or you know, have someone show that they've gotten you know, vaccinated with COVID-19. COVID but at the same time, the university has a responsibility to protect his students right. and to protect his faculty and staff. Yeah, Adam, Attorney General Todd Rokita continues to be uh, putting himself out there on a lot of these discussions, too. 
That's right. He does seem to be in full campaign mode uh, at, at this point, um, clashing with the governor, uh, you know, clashing with, uh, you know, a number of state lawmakers. And uh, I think we'll continue to see him in, in the news. Uh, it's interesting. If you look at Purdue University, there's a sort of interesting bookend to the pandemic. Um, you know, Mitch Daniels was former governor. Mitch Daniels was out in front last year talking about how he's going to reopen the university, all of the safety precautions they're going to take. And he, in some ways, is is kind of um, siding with yeah. lawmakers in practice and that he at Purdue is not requiring uh, every student to get vaccinated okay. to return to campus as well. So there is some you know, precedent of thought here that there should be a kind of a libertarian approach to this. We'll see how it shakes out. Adam and Abdul, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Coming up next this Sunday in Focus, one year since peaceful protests led to a deadly and destructive riot downtown. We'll look at the ongoing impact up next. It's been one year since violence erupted after peaceful protests in downtown Indianapolis in the wake of George Floyd's death in Minnesota. Here in Indy, two people were murdered and the city sustained $8 million in damages. So how far has the Circle City come and what's ahead for this summer? Once again, here's Russ McQuaid. This is Monument Circle, the place where protesters first raised their voices a year ago and shook the city. been anything like this in Indianapolis. When I walked the streets as the sun came up the morning after the first night of the riots, the sound of this Saturday morning downtown Indianapolis is tinkling glass. It was obvious that downtown Indianapolis had been brutalized. There was not a city in the nation that didn't wrestle with, rightfully so, the civil unrest and the, and the discussion of equity last summer. And, and certainly we were bumped and bruised in Indianapolis. We saw that play out. It may have taken Mayor Joe Hogsett almost two months to accept my invitation to go for a walk downtown. Black Lives Matter! But city leaders say they heard the cry for change and have reacted. We got a chance to listen to some people that we don't typically get an opportunity to listen to. They made their voices known. Of 129 arrests and cases presented for prosecution that weekend, Marion County Prosecutor Ryan Mears declined charges in 102 arrests, he said, to protect the First Amendment rights of protesters. I've had a conversation with Prosecutor Mears. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we'll communicate more as things go on, but we've had those conversations about what does he need from us and what can we expect from him as far as charges being filed when arrests do have to be made. As we've followed this story over the last year, the ACLU and its clients from Black Lives Matter and Indy 10 won concessions from IMPD on how and when officers can use tear gas only in response to criminal activity. We did work out an agreement, new policies with the police department that at least requires them to question the excessive, what we thought would be the excessive use of force and that hopefully uh, would prevent that from happening again. The biggest thing is everyone matters. The same people we watched on the front lines for criminal justice reform last May are back out this spring. And their demands remain unchanged. It still feels the same to me. Whether we won the lawsuit or not, I still feel like IMPD, if what happened last year happened again, I feel like they'll still be aggressive and be the aggressor like they was last year. Last summer, the City County Council approved more civilian oversight of IMPD's general orders and use of force board. 
I think that there are some attempts, but I think we have to be mindful that that happened because of public pressure. So I'm always cautious when we're when people attempt to applaud our city leadership. We have our defund IMPD campaign that is going to continue going forward. The other major area impacted by the riots was the city's economy. And now we're seeing signs downtown that the city's business and visitor sectors are recovering. Well, we've certainly bounced back. We're open again. I think we see the wood is off the windows. Uh, people are opened up. People are more confident uh, today. And it opened up a whole dialogue and discussion that didn't exist in the city like that before. In our city, it opened up an opportunity for discussion about what does security and safety in our downtown look like. Downtown is getting incrementally better. We learn to listen. We also learn that we can't have that level of violence happen again because it was so detrimental to our downtown that it took a significant amount of time and energy and money to recover. Our downtown drives our economic vitality for the entire city. So we need to make sure that we're continually investing in our downtown, not allowing damage to occur. And the crowds are returning downtown, residents and visitors. Now that the heart of Indianapolis begins to resemble what it once was before the last weekend of last May, as art flourishes where broken glass exposed a once darker interior. It created a canvas, not only for expression, but it created space for listening and for conversation. Mayor Hogsett says the city is committed to having those conversations. I know we've come a long way uh, in a year's time. Uh, I think that uh, in many ways we as a community are more transparent than we've ever been before. And the record reflects that since that difficult weekend, I guess by most estimates, we've had maybe as many as 130 peaceful protests in the city of Indianapolis since that time. So I think progress continues to be, we're not gonna let up off the accelerator. I think whenever there's a crisis, you react and you recover, which I think that uh, our city has done, and then you start to plan for the future. And right now, we need to commence that planning for the future. That was Russ McQuaid reporting. Stick around, we'll be right back after this. CBS Sunday Morning is next, followed by Face the Nation. And I'll see you over on Fox 59 for race day coverage all morning long. Thanks for joining us this week. Enjoy the 500. We'll see you again next Sunday. In Focus.